Welcome to the third episode of the Inspiratio podcast, a podcast exploring topics related to rationality, spirituality, and art. I am your host, Navid Divana. I'm a DJ, trained neuroscientist, and explorer of spiritual topics here in the city of Amsterdam. Today's guest is Dr. Stefan Schleim. He's an associate professor of theoretical psychology at the University of Groningen, and he's the author of different books on philosophy, psychology, and the neurosciences. He's also a certified yoga teacher and explores a variety of spiritual topics. Today we talk about the history of yoga, Eastern philosophy, religion, and modern psychology. We talk about behaviorist criticism of consciousness research, yoga as a tool of self-inquiry, the higher self versus empty self, the benefits of yoga, consciousness beyond life, and several other topics. If you'd like to support the show, there are several ways you can do this. You can do this on a monthly basis or with a one-time donation. If you support the show, you ensure that it will continue into the future, and I am very grateful. You can also sign up for our newsletter to get an email when a new episode is released, and I promise no other marketing. And I'll release a new episode about every four to six weeks, and this might increase in the future. For all of this, you can check out the episode description for some links or our website, inspiratiopodcast.com. And now I bring you Stefan. So Stefan, welcome. Thanks. Um, It's great to be here. Yeah. How are you doing today? I'm really, really very well. Okay. Thanks, and you? Nice. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I was enjoying the sun outside. I was enjoying our lunch. Mm. And um, now I'm ready to go. Then let's go. <laughs> let's go. <laughs> so, um, please introduce yourself. Introduce yourself. Yeah, I was, uh, I was a bit afraid that, that you might ask me to introduce myself because <laughs> that's already a bit like jumping at the conclusion. I mean, we are going to talk about yoga and science, I suppose, and how the two go together or also not go together. And I think the very basic question here is also actually, who are you? Who are yourself? And I could tell you now, of course, that my name is Stefan Schleim and I'm originally German and I'm now in the Netherlands, and I'm teaching at the university. I'm a theoretical psychologist with a background in uh, philosophy and cognitive science. But that also for many years I have been studying yoga and Indian philosophy more broadly. Or that I'm a passionate dancer. (laughs) That's also how we got to know (laughs) each other and how I got to know also your Inspiration inspiration podcast. Um, Yeah, or maybe there is uh, an answer to that question that goes a bit deeper and that might also invite the listeners here to think actually about who who am I really? Who is this human being, this subject listening to this? And yeah, who am I in the end? That's a very big question. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, you already took it off, didn't you? Um, yeah. I so, like to go deep very quickly. <laughs> yeah, I understand. That's great, actually. Um, 
but this identity of yours on this yeah. planet, Stefan Schleim, he yeah. uh, is a PhD, a doctor in theoretical psychology. Yeah, the PhD actually is in cognitive science. Oh yeah, cognitive science. But now the field I'm working in is theoretical psychology. Yes. Yeah, yeah. The science of the mind, yeah. the thing that I also studied back in the day. Well, for me, it's not that long ago, but um, <laughs> quite some years already. Yeah. And you're also a certified yoga teacher. That's right. Yeah. yeah. That's right. So what is yoga? What is yoga? <laughs> there are, it's a bit loud what, what you think it is. Now there are so many answers to that. But I give you my own perspective. So, I mean, there are some people who, you know, they look up maybe up in the dictionary. Yoga, or you would probably pronounce it yoga without the A at the end. Uh, it's a Sanskrit word. And Sanskrit is the one of the ancient languages in, in India, like Latin or Greek used to be also in, in Western culture. Uh, and then literally you could translate it as uh, as a union. Actually, yoga is the root of also in English yoga or in Dutch yuk or in Deutsch joch. So it's like connecting things to each other, which of course then raises the question, actually, what do you want to connect? Or what is that connection about? Um, but maybe let's keep that in mind for a bit later, because then we will talk about yoga as a psychological practice. Uh, and, and that's also what I find the most important contribution. But apparently yoga also has become very popular in the West with millions and millions of practice practitioners in many countries and also so many people traveling to India, unless there is maybe a lockdown. But generally speaking, the, the number of tourists to India and many of them are what you could call spiritual tourists, went there to learn about the roots of yoga, the country where it comes from. It is very popular for its physical exercises Uh, some might also know that uh, breathing is also an important aspect of um, particularly the more traditional yoga. Um, but if you study it a bit more deeper, then you discover actually a whole psychological and philosophical system as well. And that's also what made it what made it more interesting for me a couple of years ago when I had my second attempt, so to speak, at get, getting to know yoga more deeply and more personally also. Right. Yeah, uh, when I actually started to um, study the different um, Eastern philosophical paths mm -hmm. and maybe religions, um, I yeah wasn't familiar with the uh, interconnectivity between all these fields. Uh, like I didn't know that yoga was more than a physical exercise mm. before starting to get a bit more deeper into mm. all these things and if, if you look at eastern philosophies and ways of life mm. um, then um, it's not always apparent that uh, a lot of these things from the philosophical perspective and the body perspective and uh, yeah that they're all interconnected at, le at least it wasn't clear to me and mm. um Do you think there is a reason for that, that in the West people have... Are there more people like me? Do you mm. think that only think thoughts that yoga was just these physical exercises, mm. so to say? Or Yeah, I think for the, for the majority of the people, it's now basically that. And also what keeps them going to yoga classes and doing the exercises... Um, and I think that also tells a bit about our own culture and what we find interesting in our own lives. But if you know a bit more about the history of yoga and how it actually got introduced into the West around 1900, so it's now a bit more than 100 years ago, 
uh, originally these were people who were thinking that there were um, treasures to discover in India. And what is important to know here is that, of course, in India at that time was still occupied by the British rule rulers, kings actually, and uh, and there and, and there was also something like Western supremacy in the sense that the idea was that the Westerners are like the technologically advanced ones, you know, they occupy so many other countries, and that somehow these cultures also a bit racist arguments that these other cultures that they are less worthy than the Western culture. Um, but then there were a couple of intellectual, particularly also rich people who could afford to travel at that time around 1900. There you couldn't just get a plane ticket and go from Schiphol to Delhi and <laughs> then go to India. You would have to go on by boat and it would take a long time. It would be very expensive. But there were some rich people who believed that, that there was also something very important for humanity that could be found in Indian, Indian culture. And India, India, we should say, is really also one of the most ancient cultures which still exists nowadays. So we can really also learn about the human family as a whole, so to speak, by learning more about Indian culture. And they then discovered certain scriptures, certain texts. And there was around 1900 also a very important conference in the United States where Hindus, as we would nowadays say, went there and spoke about yoga. But yoga is more as a psychological thing, more about the philosophy. And there it was also... Uh, you, you could not really distinguish it also even from a, being a religion. But in America, um, which has not such an ancient culture as, as I mean, the, there's actually also Western occupation in America, let's not forget that. Yeah. But this Western society there in America didn't have such an old culture as ours in Europe where these people came from, you know, these people occupying the country came from. And the idea is that therefore they were more open to Eastern influences also because they had less of their own history in their own country. So in there, originally yoga was yeah very about, much about spirituality, about religion also. Um, and then a bit later in Europe, um, like something like a body culture um, got bigger and got more popular. Bodybuilding actually, and also particularly also in Germany or Northern Europe, Sweden. With um, the Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> that, that was a bit later, but it's actually related. It's actually the same idea, but yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger, he, he in the end really popularized it a lot in our times. Not yoga, but, right? You mean bodybuilding? Bodybuilding, yeah, but in the 1920s, 30s. And these, the, so these um, aspects of this body culture in, in, in Europe um, made people also interested in yoga as this more physical practice. And there were actually also kings, for example, in India at that time, rulers in India, who used the more physical yoga to um, to train their soldiers, for example. And this is also actually where probably the more dynamic forms of yoga, like the sun salutations, came from, yeah. that there were some rulers who wanted to have fit soldiers. So, And then in the, so in the West, we had different groups, say the more spiritual ones, who were interested in yoga as a spiritual thing, as a religion maybe. And we had also this, this body culture, and in a way, everybody picked out what they what they like most. Right. Um, but isn't the spiritual yoga, uh, yeah, per definition, related more to peace than to war? So the physical yoga, yeah, that can be implemented if you just take that mm. aspect out. But if you take it as a whole, isn't it more like a very peaceful philosophy? Yeah, and most practitioners nowadays who also did some yoga teacher training courses, they might have heard that 
so-called ahimsa in some Sanskrit, which means literally non-violence, that this is a very important value in yoga. For that reason, also, many yoga practitioners are vegetarians, for example, also, because they think, or even vegans, because they think that eating animals always goes along with uh, violence against animals. So that's true. But yeah, you know, also India is such a big country, and it also doesn't have only a peaceful history. And also in India, people would pick out or interpret maybe the sources in a way and you know there has always also been a dis- discussion about something like um, a justified war so are there good reasons to go on war and even religious religious traditions which on the one side always emphasize peace and love among people have always also been abused you could say to justify wars and you actually see this very same thing in india and particularly if you take another very important source the so-called bhagavad gita yeah which uh, is actually also read in many yoga teacher trainings still nowadays. Um, this is actually about about the ethics of a warrior on the very basic um, right. uh, level. When was the so? The, how would you describe what is the Bhagavad Gita? The Bhagavad Gita, yeah. So um, these theosophers, uh, as they are called, like these rich people that are just noticed or mentioned who then traveled to India and were looking for these scriptures. And when was this? Around 1900, okay. a bit earlier. And right. remember that at that time there were British officials running India, so to speak, or ruling in India. So there was also this link to Western cultures. And actually the people there also, there were also some influential theosophers who had a lot of time, who had learned the ancient language like Sanskrit or other local languages. And they had so much time, they translated also some of the very early texts that then were also distributed in in India and in Europe sorry for those people who could not afford traveling there or who couldn't read the uh, the language so um and the the theosophers somehow had the idea that in all religions or all cultures there are two very important sources like for example the old testament and the new testament in christianity um and then um they discovered two texts basically and the one are the so-called yoga sutras of patanjali which are a treatise on, treatise on meditation, we could say. Uh, and the other one is the Bhagavad Gita, which is actually literally, it means uh, the song of the Lord. And uh, this, uh, this title already emphasizes, I think, that this is much more religious. And this is actually about a mythical uh, situation uh, of a, a warrior who actually at the very beginning decides that he doesn't go to war. And uh, and then how does he deal with that? How does this warrior whose duty it is, so to speak, to fight for his people? There's, of course, also a, a cause for him. Uh, how does he react and what does happen? And there are now the more, say, the more peaceful people. They, um, they would say, uh, we interpret this on a more symbolic level. So, like, it's the struggle in life that every one of us has. You know, every one yeah. of us has a dilemma once in a while. So they interpret this then in a peaceful way. But there were also, and actually also still are, people who used the very same text this Bhagavad Gita to justify real war, so real right. fighting between people and also murder and killing people. So this is something we see in many, many religions. And uh, is the Bhagavad Gita, is it based on much more ancient texts? Or um, what's yeah. the source of it? I'm kind of like curious because mm. for me, I think uh, I remember one time uh, someone, some... Uh, um, monk on the streets uh, mm. offered me a Bhagavad Gita and uh, uh, I yeah, read parts of it. Yeah. And, uh, it's been a long time ago, but I had the feeling that it's been, is it now, you know, it, it might feel for 
uh, us uh, people raised in monotheistic cultures mm. as if it is a we have a unified book you know the bible or the quran or mm. etc uh, and is this like a kind of a unified book for hindu religions or uh, is that not the mm. right way to look at it well some people call it a hindu bible yeah but also in india we should not forget that this is really a huge country Yeah. It's more than a billion people. It's actually its own continent in a way, or subcontinent and at least. And there are, of course, also many different groups, or we might say sects, uh, who have different traditions and, and different sources. But I mean, the, the Bhagavad Gita is something like a common knowledge or common culture, and it's part of a bigger um, epic story, the so-called Mahabharata, okay. which many people perceive to be uh, something like an, a very original story about Indian culture oh, right. with so many role models. And, uh, and it's actually, again, uh, much about kings and, and warriors and, and what they are doing and, and, and the dilemmas that they have. And it's actually, if you if you leave, a, uh, leave aside this more spiritual aspect, also as a cultural thing, it's one of the very ancient sources of human literat literature, you could also say. Yeah. But then there are some people who really believe strictly that everything that's described there has happened literally thousands of years ago. And that's probably what a monk in the street might tell you if he gives you a book like this and says, you know, like this is thousands of years old. And um, the one problem here is that in Indian culture, Uh, in the ancient culture, they were not so interested in, in keeping the dates. So they, um, in a certain way, also the in, in the Western culture, we are thinking more linearly yeah. in, in a certain way. So we always think, you know, there's A, B, C, D, and everything logically follows some certain pattern. But in India, somehow, it's a bit more about circularity. So it's A, B, C, A, B, C, A, B, C, a bit more like that. And if you have maybe this few that, in a way, things repeat each other, then it's also a bit less important to keep the, the dates right because in a way it's getting back anyway. So, you know, <laughs> so therefore, um, therefore people didn't record it so properly. Um, and we have to, um, yeah, we have to, to guess or to make assumptions about that. And probably it's about 1500 years old, All at right. least the written down version, you know, what we don't know is in India, like in actually also many other cultures, people didn't write down everything or maybe didn't write anything at all. And in India still nowadays, there are people with great memories who actually memorize these very, very long texts. And, um, and we, of course, don't know before the written versions how long that already might have existed in society. But I think 1500 years, something like that, around that era time would be a good guess based right. on the sources that we have nowadays. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um I want to get uh, to the main topic again yeah. of our conversation. You sent me an uh, essay that mm -hmm. you have written. Uh, it's not published yet, right. yeah. or yeah. Uh, I don't know if you're planning to publish it, but maybe uh, that's a different story. But um, it, you sent me this, um, your essay, which is on yoga mm -hmm. and whether it can be unified with science or contribute yeah. to science or yeah how these two interplay with each other yeah. and um you kind of start off with looking at this um more spiritual uh, aspect of yoga mm -hmm. uh, and um you start off with uh comparing it if i'm correct correct here mm -hmm. you can correct me if i'm wrong with comparing it to certain um western uh modern Uh, roots of psychology like Wilhelm Wundt, mm -hmm. who also was studying consciousness. Right. And mm -hmm. um, you're describing uh, 
experiments that Wilhelm Wundt was doing mm -hmm. in the 19th century mm -hmm. to study consciousness from a more psychological perspective, maybe, yeah. uh, like kind of the, the, the beginnings of modern Western psychology in mm -hmm. a way, experimental psychology. Yeah, uh, indeed. Can you, can you tell something about this? Yeah. So the idea behind this is actually a thesis that I wrote to complete uh, a 500-hour yoga program here in the Netherlands ah, okay. at the Sasvita Institute in Beethoven. And this is my final project, so to speak, to finish, to complete this this training. And um, and with my background, I mean, maybe some of your listeners are now a bit surprised, you know, that that we were talking about things like the Bhagavad Gita, which they maybe never heard about before. Yeah. But I think that even yoga practitioners here in the West, you know, when you go to a yoga studio, you may see these elephants, elephant-headed gods, for example, and then then maybe you're a bit confused, like, what, what does it mean? And, and if you know a bit more, then you know it's like a representation of the god Ganesha, which is very popular in Indian culture. So um, there are always these links, and I think it's a bit difficult to, to maybe understand, to make sense of that, if you don't know the Indian background. And the thesis is an, is, is an attempt to reconcile these views. So also, in, as a yoga practitioner, you probably very often hear statements like, yoga as a science, or yoga is based on science. And now I'm somebody with, I would say, a pretty advanced training also in Western science. I'm actually teaching theory of science to our psychology students at the University of Groningen. So this is a field of philosophy which is trying to give an answer to questions like what is actually science? How does it work? How does it progress? Yeah. So I was very interested in finding out what does it mean when people say yoga is a science? And can we really make that statement? Or is it maybe just the marketing, you know, that... If I tell you, like, it's scientifically proven that yoga makes you happy, <laughs> then more people come yeah, to yeah. your class. You know, that could also be. And uh, and then I, so I tried to find people in psychology whom I could study um, to maybe give an answer to this question. Can we perceive yoga as a science? And Wilhelm Wundt is, uh, was indeed one of my major examples because in Wundt's time, so Wundt was, uh, he's, he's known also... Um, He was a German um, psychologist, and he is known as the one who founded the first experimental lab in psychology. So we could say that ex psychology as an experimental science in its history maybe not uh, not really began with Wundt, but Wundt was a very important figure in that, uh, establishing psychology as an experimental science. And what is um, what is interesting, I mean, you also have a master's in, in, in neuroscience, so you know about how experimentation works nowadays. Yeah. But you probably haven't learned so much about the history of where it comes from and how it all began. And what is so interesting in Wundt's time is that, as nowadays, maybe some of your listeners actually are students and they may already have participated in such experiments, that nowadays um, in, in, in psychology or neuroscience, we try to investigate the so-called naive subject. So subjects who are not trained in a certain way, who don't know what the experiment is about. So because we try to get like a natural response to learn something about hum human beings in general. I mean, that's most of the time students, our own students that we are measuring as a problem that we are aware of, but we have to get subjects and then it's easy to have your own students. Um, but in Wundt's time, that was different. In Wundt's time, they actually wanted to have experienced experimental subjects. So people who ex would repeat the same experiments hundreds and hundreds uh, of times over and over again, who did it already many times, because they believe that you actually have to learn how to report on um, conscious processes right yeah and Wundt was aware of the fact that and this is called in philosophy and psychology the problem of introspection so introspection yeah. means literally looking inside yourself 
and wouldn't and philosophers before that i think already immanuel kant very important philosopher yeah. 18th century in, in germany um, they knew that if you are investigating your own consciousness you have a certain problem namely that by the act of investigating your own consciousness you're changing it are we talking yeah i i remember that quote from your paper and mm -hmm. uh what i was wondering is are we talking about changing consciousness itself or changing the content and i know this question mm. already you know mm -hmm. is consciousness different from yeah. its contents etc can lead to uh many discussions mm. but what do you what do they yeah what do you mean by changing yeah. consciousness yeah. so maybe let me add one more thing um, okay wund um he also had an idea about what scientific observation is about so if you want to answer the question like is it scientific then you must actually know what what does science mean here and Wundt has a very nice example that he says for example if you see um, a flashlight or lightning so to speak um, what actually are you seeing I mean there's something like a flash of light something um, occurring there but at the moment that you're reporting actually now imagine I would be asking you like what was this lightning like at the moment you are reporting it it's already passed so consciousness is changing all the time By itself yes. already, so we cannot put the pause button like you know at the, maybe at the YouTube when you're watching a YouTube video, and there might be a moment where we think hmm, that's interesting, hmm, that's difficult. I want to think about it. Yeah. We could just hit pause, think, and then continue. With consciousness, that's we cannot. It's it's a dynamic flow that's continuing all the time. So, are you saying that uh, is this the same argument as that memory is uh, imperfect? It's related. Okay. The, the aspect of memory is related to this um, because, of, I mean, if we are speaking about the lightning, for example, so an event that occurred in the past and that we can on, only report uh, from our memory, then, of course, we must also ask ourselves, how accurate is my memory of that? And when I'm now telling, for example, what that experience was like, how can I know that I'm, that I'm describing it in the fullest sense and that I'm not making things up? And that I actually have a full perception of it. So, and Wundt was really already aware of all these these difficulties, and uh, and therefore he said, if you want to investigate consciousness as scientists, we mu we must create a situation in which we can reliably produce conscious um, experiences, conscious events. And he compared that to an, a nice example. Imagine a, a botanist, so somebody who's studying plants, who's just taking a walk outside. Yeah. And then that person is seeing a nice flower or a nice plant that he or she has never seen before. And then they think, hmm, that's a nice plant. And this botanist now can study the plant from different perspectives and, and the plant more or less remains the same for a certain amount yeah. of time. And by observing it also, the, he or she doesn't change the plant. I mean, unless maybe the person takes it home and then studies it yeah, under yeah. the microscope and so on, then you destroy, of course, part of it. Yeah. But this is a, a something that we cannot do when we are investigating consciousness. And therefore, then Wundt, he conceived uh, of situations. And so some of you might then be disappointed if you realize what these experiments looked like. I mean, they were... And that's what I'm really curious about yeah, when I was reading your paper. Yeah. This, this was... So actually, this lightning example that I gave you is a bit <laughs> uh, representative of that. So they, they used very basic experiments where people would have to report hearing something, seeing something, flash that. I mean, also remember... In the 19th century, they didn't have computers, so they had yeah. some kind of technical, old-fashioned 
um, setups, which maybe would, would create colors or flashlights or whatever, or sounds, yeah, tactile exactly. stimulation. So really, really very basic. And then uh, people would repeat it hundreds and hundreds of times. And the idea was, um, getting back to this question of these experienced experimental subjects, so these people who really trained to become an experimental subject was that if you have done this so many times, you can do this as fast as possible. So let's imagine there's a flashlight. And within a couple of hundred of milliseconds, I already report what I saw and what it was like. And then you, you could imagine the, the, the moment in consciousness where it happened is still very close. So they thought the closer I get to the original moment in consciousness, the less it can be distorted by, for example, memory and all the mistakes yeah. that we could make. So this was really the whole logics behind psychological experimentation in the very beginning. And uh, an interesting historical footnote is that Wund, particularly in the United, in the United States, is remembered only as that, like as a hardcore, diehard experimentalist who says we must be able to reproduce these processes to investigate them scientifically. But he actually had a much bigger vision of psychology, which also included cultural psychology, the humanities, um, so human beings as a whole and human societies and cultures as a whole. But Wundt said, these are aspects that we cannot ex um, investigate experimentally because in this, so um, imagine feelings, thoughts, so much more complex um, processes that are nowadays investigated yeah. in psychology and neuroscience. Wundt would have said, we cannot investigate them scientifically because we cannot produce them reliably in an experimental setting. Right, and so... Um Wundt was asking subjects to, after seeing a f flashlight or something like that, to report what they saw, like yeah, or for what, example, I, what color or what intensity, yeah. such things. So more or less, I don't know, quantifying what they what they saw. Somehow, giving words, expressing it in, in very yeah down to earth way. Yeah. Okay. So b basically. Um, he wanted to know if we are capable of making correct observations from our memory? Hmm. Well, he assumed that under these conditions, our memory would be most accurate. So this whole idea of responding so fast was to, to avoid the distortion that yeah. might occur in memory. But in these times of, uh, of psychology, um, you know, psycholog psychologists also, they... This was actually a time also when many of the other sciences were not so developed yeah. as they are nowadays. But for example, um, Newtonian physics already was something like um, a good case, a good example of what science could be like. And if you know what original um, experimentation in psychology was about, so they actually were trying to find uh, something like natural laws, you know, so to then, to then put such um, processes into mathematical formula and then describe the temporal dynamics, like maybe how long does it take to respond and how if you change the stimuli, maybe if you change, make it brighter or darker or so, then how does that affect the response? So they, they were really looking for very, very natural law-like generalizations to oh, describe right. yeah. human beings. Okay. Uh, but of course, that's a very basic, yeah, exactly. very basic way of describing yeah. human beings. Yeah. All right. Um, so um, uh, after that... Um, you go on to the f uh, group of people after Wundt who mm -hmm. did think you can also study those things in consciousness which are very personal, so to say, right? Mm -hmm. So right. Uh, the, the systematic introspection. Yeah, right. Um, 
how what kind of experiments were they doing what do they why did they think that they were mm. able to um, describe the contents of consciousness mm. when it is involved with private things like mm. feelings and thoughts and yeah yeah these are these are also called the introspective schools of psychology so already explained introspection looking in yourself um looking inside um and it was um when i when i started writing the thesis i um, didn't know much about wound yet so it was also quite a surprise for me i mean the what what i've learned what i had learned about him was that they had used these trained um subject um, subjects experimental subjects and i found this idea interesting because i also thought when we are meditating for example or when we're doing yoga yoga slash meditation um then in a way we are also training our own inner perception so particularly if you are maybe studying more or learning a bit more classical form of hatha yoga for example where it's much about moving in a conscious way breathing at the same time moving in the sp speed of your breath and then um yeah maybe moving slowly so experiencing also what's going on inside and therefore i thought so maybe wound would be a case where which i can compare to that but what it, what turned out from my own investigation so which was really a surprise for myself was as we already found out by now, the experiments that Wundt made were not really, can't really be compared to that. And Wundt actually himself, he didn't use the, the term uh, introspection, which is also something I learned newly from my own thesis, but he only spoke about scientific observation. So in that All sense, right. okay. my attempt, you know, but that's sometimes like an experiment and it might fail also. You have an expectation and it turns out just to be different. So, and then indeed, I, I looked briefly at some other sources and then there were these introspective schools and there they were different different at attempts or people which may be like free association that people would try to write down uh, what experiences were like uh, and exchange that. And we maybe could also link that to uh, phenomenology and philosophy. So the school in philosophy which tried in a very basic way to think about Husserl, for example, or also then some of the French philosophers, Merleau-Ponty is still uh, well-known and... and frequently cited name in from Fra French philosophy. So philosophers who thought that we should investigate um, consciousness by describing it in words, but not just like in very simple quantitative terms, but really the quality of it, what it is like to experience something, what it is like to see the blue of the sky behind you right now, for example. And, um, and these introspective psychologists try to systemize this in a bit more way to have maybe more subjects describe that. But it was a very short chapter in, in the history of psychology uh, until the very early 20th century. And then around that time, 1915, um, behaviorism entered and uh, became very strong. And it might also be related to actually this, the First World War and then shortly after the Second World War. That before, psychology before took going, a completely different turn. Okay. Yeah, but please, yeah. yeah, just before going into behaviorism yeah. and that, I I kind of, so um, we're talking about Wounds experiments and mm -hmm. then we're talking, who was interested in uh, if uh, people are able to connect to the content of their consciousness, mm -hmm. uh, but then based on something they had perceived in the outside world and then came mm -hmm. the systematic systematic uh, introspection introspection yeah, um, yeah, scientists yeah. psychologists so to say who yeah. said actually no we want to uh also describe the things in the inner world like the the, yeah. the perception of feelings or what yeah. a color is like yeah. from the 
insight. Well, what were the uh, differences? What what conclusions did both these groups come to? Like, what, what were their findings back then? Yeah, yeah, I, I must admit. Uh, that I'm still uh, I'm still a student here, and the the strange thing is that uh, these schools they're, they're they're not taught anymore, so they really have been forgotten in the history of psychology, and therefore <laughs> we don't know much about them. And okay. uh, I mean, there, there were probably also um, I mean part of the critique that then the the behaviorist voiced was probably also justified. I mean, you know, if we that's what also people now in, in everyday language what they call philosophizing you know if i if we were just sitting here drinking a coffee and then saying hmm what does it feel like and oh what is the sky like and what is the weather like you know it might be enjoyable to do that but in the end we might ask ourselves but now what's the conclusion or what's the knowledge <laughs> besides in itself than knowing what the weather is like for example so there um yeah so the the, the basic critique against the inter school of introspective psychology was that it would be too vague and that these concepts also like feelings, emotions, that psychologists cannot define them, that we don't have a clear answer to actually what it is. And a science that actually cannot say what it is about, of course, has a bit of problem, you know, because then people start questioning what people are doing if you cannot really say clearly what, what it is about. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Okay. And um, yeah, and therefore also just the same in, in, in philosophy, a phenom phenomenology continued to exist. And I feel that philosophy is a bit more honest to its own roots so it's part of philosophy actually also is very traditional in the sense that it studies its own history yeah but in the more empirical sciences and i actually also saw that you know i had computer science as a as a minor subject and i know a bit how what the mathematicians were doing the physicists were doing most scientific programs nowadays at the universities they don't address much um, or don't spend much attention on their own history and uh, we have a very special exception in Groningen that we have in our own department, Theory and History of Psychology, where I'm actually also part of also. So we have a very special circumstance here. But while well, the introspective psychologists, maybe we could say, before they could really start going, they were already, in a way, eradicated from, from history. And this, I think, partially, I still have to continue my own research here, but that the First World War was a bit related to that. And should I maybe ah, explain, right. yes, explain it yes, briefly? Please. So at the same time, behaviorism um, was proposed and maybe for those of you who don't know what behaviorism is I mean probably every psychology student has heard that <laughs> yeah but uh, my but, audience uh, is hopefully not only yeah, psychologists I hope so <laughs> and even the psychologists maybe don't know the whole answer but uh, so the, 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 that was a very influential school in the early 20th century in the United States and um, and so behaviorism was really a critique of what we have just talked about so like this introspective psychology also phenomenology and the behaviorist said because um, we cannot define, for example, what feelings are, or we cannot define what consciousness is about, uh, it's, not, it's not scientific to study it. And, uh, for example, Watson, a very, very influential psychologist in establishing this school, he actually said, we must ban the word consciousness from science at large. It doesn't wow. have any place in science. You literally said that. That breaks my heart. <laughs> and, and he said, and, and, and he actually called introspection, he called it mental gymnastics. So he really made also fun of these other schools in psychology. And his argument was because of this vagueness, uh, if the psychologists kind of define what their uh, research, what their experiments are about, then, they're, then, they're, then their work is nonsense. And he then said, and he was probably also inspired by uh, biology also think about like Pavlov investigating yeah. animal uh, behavior and how this is related to stimuli that maybe these animals yeah exactly see and hear these things 
And uh, so, so Watson and other behaviorists, they were very much convinced that behavior is the only aspect of us human beings that can be investigated objectively. And if it cannot be ob investigated objectively, then it's not scientific. So this, were, this, were, this was actually the basic argument. Right. And therefore, everything, introspection, consciousness, was thrown out of science. And then, well, the First World War also came, which was, of course, an event uh, in history uh, that, that had a huge influence on how culture was uh, developing. And we, can, uh, we know, actually, that then psychologists also, they investigate something like uh, intelligent tests, for example. Yeah. And in, in wars... Then psychologists were hired, for example, to, um, to, to investigate soldiers and then to investigate their intelligence, for example, or their, how able they are to solve certain tasks such that the, the, the higher people in the army could decide what would be the best place for you. So they, this was also when psychology, in a way, I mean, we still know this from assessment centers nowadays, yeah. hopefully not to, to fight wars more efficiently. <laughs> But so psychology then became really very much a business about making people more efficient Yeah. And part of that was also to find out what the most efficient place would be for uh, for somebody, for a human being. And obviously, if that's what we're interested in, so make people more efficient, give them a good place where they can function well and, or improve their functioning, then it doesn't matter at all what's going on inside. It only matters, at first glance at least, what your behavior is, what your output is, what your performance is. Yeah, so wasn't psychology also besides... Um The, the field of improving people uh, in their work field, for example. And uh, even before that, uh, if you look at the in introspective investigations, mm. looking at how the mind works, what consciousness is, wasn't psychology also always involved with um, yeah, making people who have some sort of disorder mm. get better? Or was that something that just came later or was... Well, mm -hmm. I don't know exactly when clinical psychology, yeah, exactly. as we call it nowadays, clinical psychology, uh, when that began. But I know that with behaviorism, they also investigated therapies indeed. Yeah. So, and there, um, the idea really was that um, just like, you know, like Pavlov's dogs, for example. So with uh, these very, very simple learning um, um, experiments so that you maybe reinforce, so you give somebody a reward then you reinforce the behavior, so then you make it more likely that it occurs in the future. Or you punish somebody, and if you punish somebody, then the behavior becomes less likely in the future. So, And this was the, the basic theory behind the very first behavioral psychotherapy yeah. that was also then, I don't know precisely when, but maybe the 1930s, 40s. And by the way, we now actually didn't talk about Freud, yeah. who of course is probably the big name in the 20th century in psychology, which is again odd because it's not taught anymore at our universities. Yeah. Just like introspective psychology. But It's not Freud, taught at all. I think we got a bit of an introduction when I was studying. Yeah, there are exceptions. And for example, in Belgium or France, it's still more uh, common. Yeah. And for example, as far as I know, in Belgium and France, and a bit also in Germany, psychoanalysis, for example, is still offered and still paid for by the healthcare system. Well, I heard in Belgium they had their last frontal lobotomy like the very ancient technique of cutting someone's brain uh partially uh they had their last ones in the eight, 1980s so it doesn't surprise me that they were still <laughs> teaching freud 
<laughs> I don't want to well, offend my Belgian friends, mm-hmm. but like it just, I don't know. It's it's a bit an odd uh, comparison now, psychoanalysis and lobotomy. But uh, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, but you've seen actually that there are different cultures, and I actually I would have guessed that in in some northern countries lobotomy was carried out until the 1970s. Um, so it could be, but uh, maybe to listeners, we could just briefly explain that lobotomy was a kind of neurosurgery, so that yeah. the frontal lobes, part of the frontal lobes was really destroyed. And between, I think, the 1940s and the 1960s, 70s, and as you said, in some cases, into the early 80s, people thought that you could treat certain kind of mental problems by destroying part of the brain. Yeah. And, uh, and nowadays we know that this was really a bad move in science yeah. to destroy so many people's frontal lobes exactly <laughs> and um yeah but uh, i mean psychoanalysis Freud, uh, yeah. Freud, um i think so there are some cultures which still have this tradition um more actively but in the united states and the netherlands is a small country and it is also probably also related to the second world war and for good reason it also oriented itself to northern america which were actually also the liberating forces and and, and the, the the allies for yeah. allied partners for example so I think also that psychoanalysis was more related to north went more is got more ground in northern america you mean uh, originally yes i mean it was from Fre- europe freud was yeah. originally in of course austria yeah. german speaking uh, culture but you know many smart people had to leave europe yeah. germany austria some of them because of because of their jewish background freud himself was a jew yeah and many ah, emigrated right. to United States. And then yeah. there, this really influenced psychiatry. Yeah. And Freud himself also was not a psychologist. He was a medical doctor, yes, psychiatrist, exactly. and then developed his own very influential kind of psychotherapy. And and then... Doing cocaine to everybody. <laughs> that was a bit earlier. Yeah, indeed, he tried to treat certain problems with cocaine, yeah. but this went wrong, actually, and yeah. it cost him a lot of reputation. And then in the United States, uh, it survived. And, uh, and then around, I think, the 1970s, 80s, it lost its standing, and then psychiatrists thought we are we don't want this old system anymore. We want something new. That's what when the the, the psychiatry as we know it nowadays uh, was established in a more broader right. sense. Right. So yeah, um, just basically, uh, I think I was we were looking a lot at experimental psychology, yeah. both from a more like an introspective stance as well as the behavioral. Yeah. The behaviorist stance but then i was wondering like what was then the history maybe shortly of uh of, of clinical psychology but we yeah. can say that that started maybe more in in yeah the, the medical sciences maybe and yeah and there there was always and still is a competition between uh medical the medical business so yeah. to speak and the doctors are also the only ones in most countries i know who may prescribe drugs, for example. Yeah. The psych- psychotherapists are not allowed to do that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And uh, so there always has been kind of a competition between the two. And <laughs> of course, the line, there's no clear line between them. There are maybe different approaches. Well, there should be cooperation, not cooperation. competition between two people who want to heal yeah. the same person. So it's and and in, and in, 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 in clinics nowadays, everybody knows that also psychotherapy and, 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 and biological therapy and also social therapy actually all go together and that yeah. you help patients best by combining these approaches and the best in each of these worlds. But uh, historically speaking, there was a competition, but like, where do these people belong? You know, and yeah. um, that's maybe good to know. Yeah. And the, I mean, the reason why we were talking about that was also to understand a bit how history moves on and how then empirical sciences tend to forget a bit like the earlier 
steps yeah. of their own history, particularly if they believe that they are not valuable anymore. And for example, what some more English-oriented um, psychology programs might teach is that, well, maybe Freud is the most uh, well-known psychologist, but he got it all wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> then That's... with behaviorism, then it became a science because Freud's theory, of course, was also very speculative and very introspective, we yeah. might say, and not very objective based on, you know, objective science. And and they they wanted to forget that chapter, just yeah. as they wanted to forget like introspective psychology. That's a bit a common line here. But I mean, they of course are very very justified in asking about the clinical field because that's what probably also many people nowadays get in touch with if they have some kind of problems yeah. and seek help for them. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'd like to go back into I guess the main topic here, yeah. which is uh, <laughs> the study of. Uh, consciousness maybe. yes yes and uh can it be studied or not mm. uh so yoga basically the f spiritual yoga mm. uh, as you describe also in your essay and as i've learned is yeah is dealing with the same kind of things as uh, philosophical buddhism does or mm. schools like advaita vedanta which is more from Uh, other indian traditions mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. all kind of trying to approach the self mm. so to say uh, um i'm just wondering uh, is this like anything to add to how i describe no, go this? On. Yes. yeah okay. okay because i i before making too many assumptions mm -hmm. um the interesting thing for me is uh you know i always uh Well, the last years, I am pretty convinced. I've became pretty convinced that mm. it is very important, actually, to study the first-person experience mm. from the first-person's view, to study consciousness from within consciousness, so mm. to say, and, mm. and that I really realized, like, yeah, there is something of value to be found there. First of all, all observations. Mm even if you and I look at a digit uh, mm. that on one of our measuring devices mm. for whatever it's measuring, whether it's a biological process, something in the brain, or uh, if it's measuring some process, some physical property of the world, mm. that digit appears in our minds, like, mm. so mm. to say. And yeah, we have noticed that there's a lot of... Um, Uh, shared uh, aspects in reality so yeah mm. if i read a six there probably 99 of mm. other people will also read a six there on mm -hmm. that dial um but then um actually when now that we're talking about behaviorism a bit mm. um i'm kind of starting to see also their criticism of mm. this like um <laughs> You become a behaviorist after our talk today. Yeah, <laughs> like for, forget <laughs> this inspirational <laughs> podcast. Let's yeah. have a behavior. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not convinced, but I really like uh, it, it. It has kind of created this uh, healthy confusion in my <laughs> mind, so to say. Of what are we actually studying? Like hmm. the thing is, uh, they the behaviorists are kind of making a distinction between saying. I feel uh, anxious right now. They're saying maybe, you know, just to overgeneralize to make it easier mm. to understand. They're saying that's great. I don't really care because I see your pupils are big. Mm. I see you are going back in your chair. You are taking a bit of a distance from me. So you, your responses are you want to get away. So there is, mm. there is a mm. 
sort of a difference there uh, between saying I feel anxious and all the observations of the body are showing mm -hmm. that you're feeling anxious. Or actually the example you're giving in your book, uh, uh, in your essay um, thesis, which is so nice is uh, if two people are, that the old joke in psychology, mm -hmm. if two people are having sex afterwards, one says to the other, uh, if they're behaviorists, like mm -hmm. I can see that it was good for you. Yeah. Did you see if it was good for me? So yeah. if the behavior yeah. is, I'm just... I'm a little bit. Uh, I just wanted to put this out there. I I'm a mm. little bit confused whether one observation is more valid than the mm. other, maybe mm. so to say. And if we can study consciousness, or yeah. if behaviorists are right in their critique, I don't mm. know. Uh, mm. It's a whole lot of things I'm throwing out there. Yeah. Too. yeah, I think it actually makes sense that we now took some time also to talk about behaviorism, although yeah. most psychologists nowadays say, well, that's old and forgotten, because later on, psychologists actually did find out that uh, you cannot only investigate the outside behavior, so what you can see from the outside, but you must learn more about what's going inside, the internal processing. And this is then when the next big school in psychology was established. We call this also the cognitive turn. And that's when psychologists started drawing boxes and connecting them with errors and saying, when this process occurs, then that occurs, and so on and so on. So then they tr um, they try to explain how the mind works on, on, in that way. So then, and they, they accuse also the behaviorists of completely denying what's going on inside the so-called black box. And we can imagine that with neuroscience nowadays, where we have much better technology to actually measure what's going on inside, that's another strong argument against behaviorism. And th this is interesting because I do see a parallel sort of error in uh, uh, in neuroscience, mm -hmm. which is that um, some neuroscientists might say that, uh, okay, um, I am measuring the brain. I think mm. I saw, I, I said the same thing in a podcast with the earlier podcast, but mm. um, I'm measuring the brain. I see the amygdala mm. is lighting up the part mm. that is related to fear. Uh, so my subject is fearful, that's yeah. what I'm registering. But you cannot, if, scientifically speaking, you need to have the confirmation from the subject that the yeah. subject is experiencing yeah. fear. And then to take it even a more meta level, we have to... Re that's where the philosophy comes in or mm. defining the, the what is fear, you know? Like, do these two people agree with each other? Mm. We're, we have to make a sort of an assumption that they agree that if the examiner is asking the mm. person are you feeling fear that they're examining the same thing and that's maybe what a behaviorist would say that yeah. would be the criticism of accepting mm. a measurement of how fearful are you yeah. well 80% like that means nothing that yeah. they would say but otherwise you wouldn't even find out if you're doing a neuro yeah. scientific study no. yeah great that you're that you're saying that and i think we're getting closer and closer <laughs> to the core also of uh, the, the major problem that we are talking about today and uh, and you're right to notice that this link to behaviorism is important to understand because i would say and i think some other colleagues as well that psychology nowadays and at, in the same line neuroscience nowadays is actually neo-behaviorist so this, ah, yeah. this philosophical view behind behaviorism, which is called positivism, and I want to apologize for using so many foreign words, but yeah. technical, some technical terms are important. But yeah. I mean, positivism expresses the stance in science that we can only um, investigate that 
which is positively given to us. So with that, they mean which we can investigate objectively. Yeah. And with that, they mean uh, independent from me as a subject. So I, you, I mean, you brought the, brought the example with seeing the six, number six yeah, on, the, yeah, on exactly. the computer screen. And if enough subjects can see the same um, six on the computer screen, then we might conclude, okay, there's a six on the computer screen. You know, In that way, we make it independent from an individual subject, which of course was opposite to what the introspective psychologists try to do. But um, so in this basic stance that you must somehow objectify your scientific knowledge, otherwise it's not scientific knowledge, is still, I think, the dominant view to investigate human beings uh, nowadays in experiments, including neuroscience, which I actually did myself. I also used fMRI yeah. for my own PhD. Maybe I can just briefly say, I think I was the first to put lawyers into a brain scanner. Lawyers. <laughs> lawyers. <laughs> and I saw they also had brain activity. And that they were lying. <laughs> no, they were not lying. But they, they had to solve moral and legal problems in the brain scanner. We tried to understand oh, how these wow. decision-making yeah. processes worked. So I actually tried to make sense of these brain images as well. Okay. And know a bit about how this works. But uh, yeah, so that, I mean, the basic problem is and stays now for more than 100 years how we can investigate and understand the phenomenon like consciousness by looking in a way from the outside at it. And I mean, the behaviorists or the strict behaviorists said we can't and therefore we shouldn't or must not as scientists. It's just subjective and that's unscientific. The neuroscientists in the last couple of decades and uh, since the 80s, EEG originally, so when they started recording brain waves more generally, I mean, it's, it was discovered in the 1930s already that there are these brain waves that we can record. Uh, on the head, but um, it, it increased in importance. And then uh, Benjamin Libet, for example, whom some of you listeners might know from the so-called free will experiment. Maybe let's not <laughs> go into that topic today. Um, but he actually tried to investigate the uh, temporal dynamics of consciousness. So how are conscious processes investigated temporally and how we could in, maybe... In time. In time, yeah. indeed. And how we can relate that to brain waves that we are measuring. And this is, I think, also a time and, and I think... Libet's contribution is much more important for consciousness research than for free will, as we cite him nowadays most of the times. But in these days, scientists, scientists more strongly um, acknowledged that consciousness actually is an important uh, topic to investigate. And then even around 2000, 2005 now, it, has, it had become the, uh, the major narrative that it's not just that it not only has a place in science, but it is mo one of the most huge riddles yeah. that we still have to solve as yeah. humans. You know, like the whole universe, how old is it, where does it come from? Yeah. But also, in a way, our own inner universe, like what is consciousness, what is its function uh, in, in life, and how does it work? And uh, neuroscience certainly has also contributed to give it more credibility in the sense that now we can see more clearly what's going on inside, so to speak, when yeah. people are having conscious experiences. But in the end, I think... I already said that it's, it's in a way a new version of behaviorism because if philosophers are right that, uh, you know, philosophers have certain definitions of what's, what the central features of consciousness are, and maybe let's talk about a few here. Um, one that many of you might have heard of is the so-called phenomenal content, so what it feels like, the quality of it, like I'm now seeing the blue sky and the the, the skyscrapers here of Amsterdam right behind you, uh, and that these these well the quality of this experience, and this is actually what the phenomenologists also try to explain, what the introspective psychologists try to explain. So from the inside, from being a perceiver of this scene, what it is like to experience it. 
So to try to get this content fixed, what is this conscious process about? Um, and this is so now sometimes called the hard problem nowadays in, yeah. in philosophy and science that, for example, imagine I'm, I'm seeing the blue sky outside and I'm seeing the windmills moving everything. Um, and now I would see precisely on the most detailed level what's going on in every brain cell, every synapse maybe even of the 86 billion brain cells that I have in my, in my brain. Um, neurons and many other cells actually by the way and if i would see all of that would i understand what that experience of the blue sky behind you is like and this ex this argument has been made for a very long time two or three hundred years already and still most people believe that by understanding the so-called mechanisms so what's going on in the brain or imagine that you could make the brain huge like you could run or walk around in it in a museum and you could like look at all the neurons and synapses and all the processes going on, would you understand what it is like, what this this experience is like that the subject is having right now? There are people who still believe that the looking at the neurons is yeah. equals the experience? Are there are many people you think still... It's the dominant... Okay. I would even say it's the dominant few in consciousness research nowadays. Well, that you can by understanding the mechanism, you understand the process. Yeah, but you, you can... Uh-huh, yeah... Um, wow, that's strange. <laughs> to me, it's very strange because yeah. for to me, it's like comparing if I look at a computer chip, um, like I use my computer for many things. One of them mm. is, for example, um, DJing. Yeah. I use DJ software. If I look at the computer chip and I zoom into all the yeah. little aspects of it while the DJ software is running, then I'm not going to be able to make my mix <laughs> because I'm not seeing the DJ software. I'm not yeah. seeing, so the conscious process is not mm. equal to the hardware, so to say, I just... Yeah, and that's a metaphor, the computer metaphor that has been very influential in the last decades. I mean, nowadays, um, people are imagining more about networks, and there you can actually also see how views in the history of science change. Actually, before the computers, people imagined that it's a bit like a telephone system with all the wires and connections. And before that, people imagined that consciousness or the brain might work like a factory, which was then, you know, a steam machine. So in every time, in a way, uh, scientists have a metaphor with which they try to explain difficult phenomena like uh, like consciousness, for example. And uh, and now the computer metaphor is interesting to think about and uh, to compare with. I mean, you are right that, that we have the software, the program, and the song, for example, that you have as a digital file on your computer. And yeah. by the way, you're a great DJ. Let me yeah. say that. I really like to dance to your sets. <laughs> um, but I mean, imagine now, I was just talking about this idea that we wouldn't see the whole brain and we wouldn't know what every neuron is doing. For the computer, it would be like the, the central processing unit, the processor, yeah. you know, the CPU, the memory. And there everything is. And in the end, everything is as zeros and ones. So that's the digital system, you know, binary system, binary code. And... Um, well, there, there are actually uh, so-called decompilers or disassemblers. So this is software which tries to um, look at these zeros and ones, so to speak, and translate that back into the code, into the algorithm. So this, I mean, this really takes a lot of time and nobody would do this for something complex like uh, DJ software, which is really yeah. probably millions and millions of, of lines of code when they program that. Um, but for very uh, basic, like factories and robots and such things, so very, very basic steering um, units, they really program machines on this very basic level. So can you and, uh, just again say the computers are going from the zeros and ones that's, that's back what, to the... I, I, 
I mean, you made this as an example. Can I understand what a DJ is doing by looking at the DJ software and how? At no, no. I, 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 I meant, can I, as a DJ, yeah. uh, I need to look at the software. I need to have a trend. Mm -hmm. Like, I need to have the effect of the hardware. Yeah. Uh, on my screen the thing that it produces on yeah. my screen i need Indeed. that to understand it if i just look at the hardware if i just stare yeah. uh, at what the microchip in my computer is doing mm. uh, then i have will have you know that that's not so the brain if i look at the brain i'm yeah. not seeing the emotion yeah for example that's Indeed, and I mean, you are doing that, you're using the software because it makes sense. Yeah. But if we make this comparison now between brain and computer, yeah. then the idea would be somewhere in the computer, the software that you are running and that you are seeing with all the windows yeah. and all the plugins and everything on your computer screen must at some basic level at the hardware be zeros and, and ones. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. that's the most basic language of all technical or most electrical systems. And now there is software the so-called decompiler, for example, which tries to translate these very basic zeros and ones back into a programming language that would give us something like an algorithm. Like, yeah. what does this program actually do? And I mean, this okay. algorithm, yeah, also yeah, the yeah, people yeah. who are developing new DJ software, they are writing algorithms. Yeah, yeah. It's just they are so complex and there are so many combined algorithms and everything that nobody would look at the zeros and ones. But in, in principle, it should be possible. Yes, yes. That you understand what the computer is doing by getting all the zeros right. and the ones. So then you could understand what the brain is producing exactly. by looking at the neurons. That's yeah. the idea, exactly. And this is why we're using this, this this computer metaphor to try to make sense of. But um, yeah, I mean, the conscious experience is apparently of a different kind than what the DJ software is doing. Yeah. And uh, what I just said, this phenomenal content, so what it is like, the feeling, the quality of experiences is then and is is say the one of the basic features of consciousness and the idea that the hard problem of consciousness um means or refers to the fact that by seeing so to speak the algorithm by seeing so to speak what all these cells are doing in the brain imagine i think uh, i tried to make this example that you could increase the, the brain and walk around and then see everything going on there that still you would never know what it is like to have these experiences. So in this, this is one aspect of phenomenal content. Yeah. And another way to formulate this problem is then what philosophers call the subjectivity of consciousness. And this refers to the idea that you can only know conscious experience from the inside. Yeah. So in the end, only the conscious experiencer, her or himself, knows the content of their yeah, consciousness. Yeah, that's what I'm still convinced yeah. of. <laughs> uh, yeah. So... To, to put this in um, experimental terms, yeah. if we want to go from a uh, subjective uh, observation into a scientific conclusion, so mm. a subjective research into one's own mind without anyone else being able to verify that same experience, mm. the other person can verify if they found the same thing when they looked into their own mind. So let's take a school, a classroom full of Mm. Uh, Zen Buddhist, <laughs> okay? In Zen Buddhism, uh, always very difficult to explain these things on a podcast, I think. But uh, in Zen Buddhism, you try, for example, to find the self mm. that is thinking. So who is thinking these thoughts? Who is uh, feeling these feelings? Like, um, in the end, that's, I think, what uh, a lot of Zen 
Buddhism is about is mm. to try to so someone comes to a Zen teacher says uh, yeah I have a problem and then the teacher says okay go sit down and tell me who exactly has this problem <laughs> and then they come back and they say they come up with all these crazy uh, answers uh, like they pull out a frog or they <laughs> I don't know show a flower I don't know it's yeah, just yeah. basically the teacher says go away go away go back until you can mm. tell me who has this problem and then they come back and they yeah. say there is no one to have the problem and then mm. if they really get it they have seen they have observed mm. by intro going in that introspection that there is no observer there is just the observing there is just mm, the mm. problem there is just yeah. the thought so and then the others the others who are practicing with them and who are trying to uh, turn consciousness back on itself uh, all discover hey this cannot be done so mm. there is just observation now we have like a gazillion people confirming this for mm. example uh, i don't know 100 people in a class confirming this and everyone who tries this technique uh, will eventually get it or they will mm. try different technique and they will see there is no self mm. in which is observing anything there mm. is just the observation so again this is difficult to maybe explain in a podcast just mm. like mm. this if people don't have these experiences but i would say i've tried this and i saw yeah exactly there is no self i just see it clearly right mm. and then another person who learns these techniques sees it mm. clearly um could one say this is a scientific mm. conclusion then that there mm. is no self within consciousness mm. yeah we certainly must talk about the self and what we <laughs> mean with that what it refers to and um so the zen buddhists i would say they're looking for it and what they see and that's maybe true of all of buddhism or most buddhist schools is emptiness in Sanskrit, uh, it's called sunyata. So therefore, the Buddhists, most of the time, say there actually is no self. It's also called anatta. So um, there is only there are only dynamic processes going on, and they're changing all the time. And in the end, what we are, the, the, all the identifications that we're having, in a way, they are il illusions. So in the end, there is something like a very basic very basic um, conscious process where there actually is no longer a distinction between subject and object. So it's something like yeah. a conscious space. Some people then say that there's bliss, luminosity, clear, whatever. I actually don't know whether I experience a state like that. Probably not. <laughs> but uh, maybe other states in, in, in meditation. But... Um, if we if we try to solve the problem of consciousness, and um, maybe before looking at Buddhism, and I would like to talk a bit more also about the yogic part because that's also yeah. what I wrote about in my thesis. But let's maybe stick for a moment also with the brain research. And you made this this amygdala example. So imagine the two of us, whatever um, we might see a huge wave coming towards us at the beach, and uh, and we might be in fear. And you made already this example, okay, the amygdala might fire. And if we were by chance at this moment on the beach uh, connected to an EEG device, then maybe the scientists could calculate, okay, their amygdala is more active. What does it tell us about the experience? And, uh, and we only know 
that the amygdala is related to fear response. By the way, not only to fear response, also, for example, eye movement and so on, eye recognition. So the brain is not as modular as, as we believed for a long time. It's a whole network, actually, with many functions and where many places have different functions. So, But the for our argument now, the scientist only knows that amygdala, for example, is um, related to fear by, for example, asking people like, what are you experiencing right now? And they might say, well, I see these huge waves. I'm in fear. I might be, I might drown, for example, in this wave. So from the past knowledge that in the past, for example, there was this relationship between this process of fear and the brain, or we could also speak about more happy, more positive examples, uh, <laughs> happiness, whatever, when you see your best friend or so, you know, you could also talk about such examples. So we always, in a way, fill in the gap by looking at the past, by asking people, or of, co of course the behaviorists would say, um, by seeing also fear behavior like running away. But then the problem is that behavior is not so specific. You could also run away to run towards somebody else and then might actually be you're happy to see somebody. So, But there's always this problem of indeed the outside prescription. And then maybe, I mean, if there is a reliable um, relationship between processes of the body, Not necessarily, not necessarily only the brain, but it might also be your heart rate, your breathing, your blood pressure, whatever, yeah. and psychological processes, you still wouldn't know what these processes are about. And now when you, when you start talking about this idea that there is um, a school or a class with 100 children or students who are then meditating, what made it a bit difficult for me was that you know, I already jumped to, in a way, enlightenment, something like that. Yeah. And there it's... Uh, <laughs> I, I, I was... There may be a link before that. So, okay. um, uh, and I mean, you, your question, I think, was, is this a scientific experiment? And that's actually precisely the question I was also discussing in my thesis. Yeah. Can we perceive or can we call meditators who are meditating and then having certain experiences, can we call that an ex a scientific experiment? So uh, do we actually solve this problem that, for example, the, f the behaviorist formulated by let's throw it out because it's not objective? Or as maybe Wilhelm Wundt said in a bit more open, less exclusive way, saying to be scientific, it must be reproducible in the end. It must be generalizable. So many different people must be able to have it and they must be able to produce it in a reliable way under similar circumstances. And, um, and there are now some Buddhists and I discussed in one chapter in my thesis, Alan Wallace's research. Yeah. Alan Wallace, maybe very briefly, he's uh, actually I also took a few of his classes That was one of the good things of the corona pandemics that he also went on Zoom. He um, uh, he studied originally physics and and uh, and um, I think religious studies also. And then as a young man, only 20 or so, he went to India, to the Ramsala, where the Tibetan Buddhists are living in exile. And he also got to know the Dalai Lama. He was actually his, he translated for him many, for many, many years. And actually, if you listen to him nowadays, he speaks very much like his own teacher, the Dalai Lama. So he's getting more <laughs> closer to him the older he gets. And he actually tries to... You mean uh, uh, Wallace, Wallace is getting more yeah, closer to becoming... Uh, very much like the Dalai Lama okay. when he talks and how he yeah. laughs and everything. Yeah. And, um, and, and so in Alan, Alan Wallace then, I think already 20 years ago, so he established a, conscious, um, a center for consciousness research, I think in Santa Barbara, in California in any case, where he also comes from. And very recently, they have a new center for, I think, contemplative research or so it's called, which even is supported by some no Nobel laureates and many other scientists, scientific researchers, experienced scientists. So because they really have this idea 
that we can solve the problem of introspection, which we talked about earlier, that by investigating consciousness, you change it. Yeah. And by looking at it later, you just maybe your memory has become distorted. So they actually say that by being an experienced meditator, you can create a conscious state reliably. And that was one of the conditions that Wund formulated already in the 1880s. Yeah. So that would solve if they are, if they are right. And, and Wallace says you can do that. But actually for him, it is, he says also um, to become an experienced meditator in that sense, you must study, uh, you must meditate some eight to 12 hours per day yeah, for a couple of months. <laughs> Uh, and if you are under very good conditions, then maybe six hours per day may be sufficient. <laughs> and what can you then do if you... Uh, because Wallace, also in, yeah. in your uh, thesis, you describe a very specific form of meditation. He describes in like a dimly lit room, sitting in a certain way, mm. having your vision kind of focused on the blurry uh, space in front of you. Um, then, So you say then you can produce a conscious state reliably so right. it's uh it, it's over and over again it's the same state yeah. what exactly does that mean <laughs> yeah so in um, in indian philosophy now including buddhism we tend to forget that buddhism is also a branch of indian philosophy yeah. because it exists almost not anymore in india nowadays yeah it's only a very small minority is buddhist now in india and they but they it's maybe a short historical remark The Indian philosophers then after the Buddha, they um, they traveled through the Himalayas, where then nowadays we call it Tibet and then China. And then in the end, they also brought it to, to Japan and many other Eastern Asian countries. And by the way, Zen, what you already referred to, uh, derives from Chan. In, in China, Zen Buddhism is called Chan Buddhism. So it was earlier in China before it came to um, Japan. But it actually relates to the Indian, the Sanskrit word for meditation, Dhyan. So yeah. Dhyan became Chan and then Zen. So it actually is the ancient Indian tradition of meditation that we are now talking about. And um, and indeed, we should now try to describe a bit what meditation is about. And uh, as I see it now, we can distinguish three different approaches. Two are very ancient, and they are also, there's also um, Wallace's terms, um, shamatha, which is basically still, stillness of mm -hmm. the mind. Um, actually, also you had Ruben in your podcast yeah. uh, two uh, shows ago, and I actually also read a few of their papers. They're very successful researchers also here in Amsterdam investigating meditation. They would probably call this focused attention meditation. That's they they have used a bit different terms, more maybe Western scientific terms. Uh, but shamatha basically is in the end um, bringing your mind to stillness. And an ingredient for that is this idea of focused attention. So you must, or you learn then, to, for example, um, attend to your breath for a long time, or attend to something you see. And you have just have this same conscious process for a very long time. And if that works, then from a scientific point of view, you could then reliably create this process and investigate it in different kinds of ways. But the only way to know if it works is if the subject says, yes, I was successful in focusing mm -hmm. on my breath. The subject is the only person then being able to validate whether they produced a reliable self-repeating state. Yeah, um, and I would agree so. And for that reason, I would believe that neo-behaviorism neo is wrong in the end because you cannot investigate consciousness without the subject. 
Yeah, but how can you believe the subject to go back to the point yeah, of view? Yeah, and that's the problem precisely because then the behaviorist would come and would say, well, okay, now maybe, for example, I see you sitting in meditation posture uh, somewhere in the park or here in your room and you don't move for a certain period of time. And then afterwards I ask you, okay, so what did you experience? And you would then maybe tell me, uh, I experienced my breath or I experienced the blue sky or whatever. And how do I know? <laughs> yeah, I know? Yeah, yeah. So we must, somewhere, somewhere we must start. We must have something like an anchor where we can begin. And I would precisely say that we cannot begin without asking also subjects about the experience. Yes. But there might also be just dishonest people. Of course, I'm not talking about <laughs> you, but there might be other people who say, you know, I'm enlightened. And we know about some so-called gurus who maybe took some courses in India and then they come back and then they tell everybody that they're enlightened. And, It's actually frightening that some of them have become very successful in just telling people I'm enlightened <laughs> and, and they believe them. Uh, of course, um, that's a problem. And here I think now Western science, and that's also my conclusion already of my thesis, can contribute by understanding better what's going on and by then maybe not proving with 100% certainty, but making it more or less likely that somebody is giving us a correct account. So imagine you were now doing your exercise and you were then saying, okay, for one Hour, I just had this one perception. And then we could investigate in all kinds of ways, EEG, fMRI, all different kinds of neuroimaging, whatever you, or maybe in the future, new methods to investigate brain function and body function. And then we could look at it and then we could say, hmm, okay, it makes sense. And for many decades, there have been findings like that, for example, that long-term meditators, that they have certain patterns yes. when they say that they're in a state uh, which is very focused, that then you can see, okay, these patterns Uh, look like what we know from people when they are paying attention to something, for example. So we can do plausibility checks. I think yeah. that's certainly what we can do and what really science adds, what, what you can, you know, I've said we must anchor it somewhere in the subject, but that's not the whole story. That's just the beginning of the story. And the contribution of science then would be to find evidence from many sources and then say, okay, this makes sense and this resembles that and compare it and then try to explain it that way. But then the subjective experience would be an essential part of the scientific yeah. explanation. So then, um, okay, we have a situation where we have a whole bunch of subjects who reliably are able to focus on their breath mm. or an object for a long time, mm. a very focused attention. Then how can we use these subjects for further investigations of consciousness? What is mm. there to investigate? What is there to find? Yeah, um, i'm I'm afraid here that at this moment here, as I already said, I don't believe in neoism, and I believe that what we call the heart problem really is a heart problem, and there is no solution to that. Yeah. <laughs> so I believe that in the end, science won't be able to answer the problem of consciousness. And uh, I mean, I'm not a consciousness researcher. I'm a theoretician looking at general processes and and trends uh, in science. So here now I can actually say we tried for hundreds of years to solve the problem of consciousness. We still haven't. Now there's a lot of enthusiasm, but that's always how science works. And that there's a new method, there's a new paradigm, there are new ideas how to solve the problem. Then everybody becomes enthusiastic. There are funds going going there, lots of monies to be spent, yeah. students writing their thesis, PhD programs, and so on and so on. And, so on. and you must be enthusiastic and optimistic for that. But I believe in the end, what they can contribute is what I'd call plausibility checks that you can say, hmm, okay, makes sense. But in the end, I mean, and you can also listen to, of course, what people say. Um, but a problem that we, I mean, we haven't still talked really about the self or, or this very deep state of meditation because there we might run into another problem 
namely that we cannot talk about it anymore, <laughs> that there are no words for that. The ineffability, so to speak, it's just, it cannot be put into words. Yeah. And this is, I mean, you at the very beginning, I think you referred to Advaita Vedanta, which is an important branch of Indian philosophy. And in Advaita Vedanta, it literally means non-dual Vedanta, and Vedanta refers to the end of the Vedas, which is yeah. a very important source of Indian philosophy. And there, they also pay attention to the concepts. Yes. And they have been doing for a very long time, 1500, maybe already 2000 years or even longer, paying attention to the concepts and what do we refer to and what do we mean. And something that we must not forget is if we put a concept like a label too soon on something, then we might stop researching it more deeper. So, yeah, that's true. Yeah, interesting. Uh, then for me, the question is... Um, when I talk to you and you talk about Advaita Vedanta yeah. and I talk about maybe, okay, uh, I know what Advaita Vedanta hmm. approximately is about. I've practiced maybe uh, more Zen or maybe hmm. Dzogchen kind of like of techniques. Mm -hmm. Also other, these are other meditation techniques to, you know, look at this ineffable self. I am pretty damn sure we're talking about the same thing. Mm -hmm. Is this an assumption? Also, Ruben, I uh, when I first met him and we had mm -hmm. well, when we had the first real talk about trying to find the observer, uh, the self in consciousness, mm -hmm. and not being able to find it, I was just because of the language used, uh, I I had this certainty, like yes, I'm pretty certain we're talking about mm -hmm. the same damn thing we mm. both realize the same thing and that that's maybe what all teacher uh, yeah a lot of students within certain meditation paths they mm. discover the same things and just because they have discovered them yeah mm. is is this an assumption that i'm making yeah. or is this am it's, i biased <laughs> it's it's a good question and i addressed that briefly also in my thesis yeah. um so when we are talking about deep states of meditation and, and here i must just confess I mean, I'm not like Wallace, a meditator who's meditating six hours a day or even eight no. to 12 hours. That's not, that's beyond my capacity. Maybe yeah. some time in my life. I believe in direct uh, realization. Mm. I believe in that if yeah. you, the, 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 um, the realization that there is no self can come mm. from pointing attention to, to its source and not finding it in meditation. Mm. So I, I do believe in shortcuts and then not, not mm. maintaining that state and being like selfless for a long time. That might mm. be like what people consider as enlightenment. That's, a, that's maybe sustaining this finding. But yeah. I do believe that this finding is there yeah. available for many. Yeah, from my perspective, of course, I cannot, I don't know what your meditative experience was like, which yeah. in a way is also... Mm. A, Related to the problem of introspection. Not that much also, like shorter <laughs> periods. And yeah. I, I even ran away once from a Vipassana mm. pretty fast because okay. it was just too boring for me. I don't know, okay. too intense. And, you know, we're really talking about the subjectivity of consciousness. And that's nice yeah. because we can link now the philosophical and the scientific concepts also to being a meditator oneself. And that's precisely the point where I wanted to get at in my thesis in a way to find to an understanding that we call that, that we maybe can call yoga something like in in personal science yeah so that it becomes a bit less uh, a bit less arbitrary and a bit more maybe controlled or a bit more supported by for example ancient sources and by the experiences of others i mean we are that's what we are doing right yeah. now we are trying to communicate with each other to find out what subjective experience is like yeah 
And maybe let me, I mean, I refer to this, to this shamatha as being one possibility of meditation. What we're now talking about would be, and, and I think shamatha is at the basis of every kind of meditation. And if you cannot sustain attention for a certain amount of time, so like if your mind goes in every direction, I mean, you still meditate, but I would say you have a bit of problem of getting into deeper levels because for the deeper levels, you must bring also the mind to rest. Um, the second approach then, and historically we actually see that in yoga, the shamatha bringing the mind to rest is a bit more um, basic. And also the yogic meditation, for that reason, also we very often do it with the eyes closed because we draw inside. That's called um, pratyahara, withdrawing from the senses, finding stillness, and then experiencing this. Um, in Buddhism then, which is uh, has become, of course, very popular and, and, and many people are doing Buddhist meditations, the second branch, you already, you already mentioned vipassana, and what probably most people don't know is that this is also an original philosophical term in Buddhism, which means insight. And this vipassana organization is just one branch of Buddhism which tries to teach this vipassana meditation yeah. to many people, and they're doing so very successfully, and they have many inspired many people. But there, then, in vipassana meditation, you try to learn more about yourself. And this is what I write about in my thesis as yoga as a way for self-knowledge and self-development. And what, you, what do you learn about yourself? For example, you learn about yourself that you are not your thoughts. You may have these thoughts like, hmm, I'm a great guy, or I'm ugly, or I'm worthless, yeah. or I'm whatever, very smart. All these thoughts are all emotions like anxiety, happiness, and so on and so on. They come and they go. And in a way, our, we are in such a way that we like to keep the happiness or the positive ones yeah. and we like to go away from the negative ones but we have very limited control here about that and this is in a way interesting in itself that 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 in a way consciousness has its own will metaphorically speaking in the sense that it comes and it goes and we have well maybe you know i, I get a phone call 10 minutes after we finish our discussion And somebody tells me, like, well, one of your best friends just died in a traffic accident, and then I will be very sad, of course, and might cry or whatever. And, but this is happening to me, and I have very limited control about it. And I mean, this is just natural. That's the human condition, you know. Um, but with insights, meditation, so Vipassana meditation, you try to learn in the end that these thoughts and the feelings, they come and go, like clouds in the sky. It's also one of the examples that they often give in Buddhism. And it is actually a process of, of identifying with this that I believe now I am hatred or I am love, yeah. attachment. And when we attach to things which are changing all the time, this can cause suffering. Yes. And you know, Buddhism started as a way to help people to get away from of their suffering, to not suffer anymore. Yeah. And, uh, and one idea is that by understanding this, um, you will suffer less. Yeah. So you can let go of negative thoughts, for example. A behaviorist would now say, like, you just mentioned so many things that we cannot even talk about, <laughs> right? While we can talk about it and we understand, we have this common sense. Of yeah. At least not scientifically. I mean, um, well, we might still be able to talk about it, you know, like just talking about everything, the weather and everything, <laughs> but it would not be valid scientific knowledge. That's what the behaviorist yes. would in the end say. But Here, and for that reason, I mean, I would also turn down behaviorism. For the meaning of our lives, what we are talking about right now is probably much more important 
than what the behaviorists try to make people more efficient, you know, this, yes. I mean, for, for, oh, so, yeah. for society. Yeah, yeah. And if we know a bit about how capitalism developed in the last 200 years or so, we can um, immediately understand why behaviorist psychology is much more friendly towards like a capitalist view of the world ah, right. than introspective. Yeah. For example, Because if you... doesn't find, look for meaning and... Indeed. Or imagine you have, you are, have a huge company and you want to have very efficient uh, employees... I mean, do you try them to improve their behavior or do you ask them, tell me, what does it feel like to sit here in the yeah. office and do boring things all day long? You know, yeah, that's, yeah. that's a completely different view on people. Yeah. So this helps us to understand a bit also how the history and psychology goes right. and why, how it works together with yeah. the leading political and economical system in society. Yeah. So, but meditation, so shamatha vipassana. And the idea is, but, but here really talking about what I read And, and what I also believe is true, but where I would say I haven't experienced it to the fullest right now, but what you already refer to, that in the end you realize that what you are, who you are, and this is actually how the conversation we are having started out with, is the perceiver of all of this. And um, yeah, so the, in, in Buddhist meditation, people are looking for something like the basis, what is at the ground of my consciousness, so to speak, and they find emptiness, Nirvana, sunyata, um, emptiness. And sometimes then they say, well, this is just basic, pure consciousness. There is no subject anymore. An interesting difference here with other branches of Indian philosophy is that they say, actually, no, here we find the higher self. And that's, I think, an interesting finding that I would like to share with your listeners, that these branches of, Buddhist, of, of Indian philosophy, Buddhism and other schools like Advaita Vedanta, Uh, basically all other Indian philosophical schools besides Buddhism, they give the com complete opposite um, answer because they say in the very deepest state of meditation, I find Atman. Atman is something like high, the higher self. In my thesis, I call this the capital S self, so the S with a capital self with a capital letter, uh, which is closely related to also the Western conception of a soul. There is really some entity And in, in, in Hinduism, to use that conce concept, it is perceived to be uh, infinite, to be permanent, unchangeable, without beginning, without end. And their enlightenment from that perspective of Indian philosophy would be to realize that this is your essence, this capital S self, okay. this Atman. And then also with their ideas about reincarnation and so on, then that's the idea that this is what continues to reincarnate, this Atman, but which is completely different from our personality. It's not, you know, what we started out with the professor for theoretical psychology, the dancer. This is just, just like random stuff in this life, so to speak, but it would not be the essence of oneself. But This is Atman. Yeah, but isn't then, uh, <laughs> isn't, doesn't it just seem as if, because we call one thing in Buddhism emptiness, yeah. Uh, there is nothing there to be found, like there is no mm. center to consciousness. But then uh, in, in, in certain Indian traditions, we call it Atman, the higher self. Isn't yeah. it just because one is called empty and the other one is called high, that it seems mm. that one seems to put something important there and the other doesn't? Because to me, what you're describing is both, it sounds like the exact same thing. Mm. Yeah. The mysterious isness why do we experience <laughs> you know why why isn't there could have been you know when you go into a state of uh, uh yeah with anesthesia you know you mm. there is n really nothing 
you just go away and then you come back and it's maybe an hour past and the operation is over. But, mm. you know, there can be an experience of that is, you know, why isn't all life that's nothing? Why is there yeah. something? So I guess both of them are coming to that same point, yeah. no? But let's let's keep that in mind. It's a very good question, but also a difficult one. Uh, but anesthesia or deep sleep when you're not dreaming, that's usually not what we call enlightenment. No, no, exactly. And I'm just saying that that is the opposite, the opposite of, yeah. of uh, consciousness, mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. to say. Uh, one problem, uh, and actually I have, like, basically every teacher also in India whom I've met, I've asked precisely this question, you know. We have Buddhism, which says, actually in, in, in Sanskrit it's then called anatta. And anatta is the opposite of atman. So an is in Sanskrit like non, not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and in Buddhism, this non-self is really a very basic conclusion. And also imp uh, impermanence. So there is nothing which is permanent. Everything is changing. And now in the other Indian schools, they say, well, the essence is permanent and it is not changing. And whatever you're experiencing, uh -huh. it is just, it is a bit like a mirror. Sometimes, you know, I already referred to this idea of the ineffability so that, that we don't have concepts for that. We cannot really talk about it. Some people then say it's a bit like a mirror. So the mirror is reflecting. So the mirror would then be the, I mean, it's not literally a mirror, but the mirror would be the Atman, would be maybe the soul, perceiving everything, reflecting it. But the mirror itself is not changing. So the mirror might reflect something blue, but the mirror itself is not blue. Yes. Um, so in, in these Indian branches, so the, the higher self is really a very, a very central concept, and much of their philosophy would just break down without Atman. So they, they say the mirror exists, and Buddhists might say there is not even a mirror. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, don't take the mirror too literally. Yeah, but, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but to speak in these terms, yes. So the mirror would be the essence, and the Buddhists would then say, well, but the mirror in itself also is empty. It's just an experience yeah. in consciousness. Uh, but the Buddhists also have a problem, and I briefly hint at that also in my... And that's something that has puzzled me also for many lives. I mean, I've studied Indian philosophy now for some 20, 22 years. And the Buddhists... I mean, I like the Buddha as a psychologist. Actually, somebody who's trying to teach us how to cope with life, how to go, how to not suffer in life. That's what I, what I find the most important lesson in, in, in the Buddha's teaching as an historical person. But Buddhism also has some metaphysical or maybe religious assumptions, for example, also about reincarnation. And then we must ask ourselves, but what is then reincarnated? Yeah. If there is no self, or at least no impermanent self, actually what is reincarnated? And there the Buddhists have something like core consciousness or the Buddha nature. And I forgot the term for that, but they also have a certain term for that. And this is what's going reincarnated. And this, then we might ask ourselves in the end, isn't this then the same as the Atman in the other branches of philosophy? So if you have Buddhism with this idea also of karma, for example, so like this law of cause and effect, and then which governs your reincarnation, and, and Alan Wallace actually literally believes that. Okay. And he makes even... Because he believes in reincarnation. I mean, he believes in Buddhist metaphysics. He believes in yeah, the yeah. assumptions of, also in this case, particular Tibetan Buddhism. And you may have heard that in Tibetan Buddhism, they have all kinds of assumptions i mean they would call it like enlightened beliefs about what's happening at the moment that you die yeah, yeah. and even after you're clinically death in the western sense for days they believe that then so to speak the the well basic consciousness of how they call it buddha nature looks for a new body to be reincarnated yeah, yeah. and remember the dalai lama is actually the reincarnation of the dalai lama okay. before that yeah, yeah so for them that's not just a, a, some 
belief, but that's the very core of their understanding of Buddhism, that this consciousness goes on in the future. Yeah. And, well, then is it maybe just a philosophical question, what we call the self, Buddha nature? What I wanted to say here is that in Buddhism, they also have this problem, and there have been different solutions from different schools in Buddhism to try to explain why there is something like a Buddha nature, but it's actually not the self that the Indian philosophers yeah, have yeah. talked about. It's not the same as Atman. But here it's getting really very, very difficult. And the reason now, like you bring up reincarnation, that's a whole discussion on itself, yeah. of course. I mean, just to make clear, you're not saying it to say that it is a fact that there is reincarnation. You're just saying it to relate to how consciousness would be perceived if it was really outside of uh, a body, a physical mm. body, so to say. Well, I find it hard to believe I, I personally cannot imagine how this should work. Reincarnation. Reincarnation. Uh, Alan Wallace really believes in it. Yeah. And he actually makes also assumptions about how we could prove scientifically that something like reincarnation exists. That's, but that probably maybe deserve a podcast. Also. <laughs> so what I just wanted to, to get across here is that if you even in Buddhism say, say it is in the end emptiness, so there is no self, you have then the problem to give an answer to the question, but then what is going, re what is reincarnated? And I mean, I personally, I would say, then maybe let's not believe in reincarnation. <laughs> um, but that's an Indian philosophy, a bit difficult because this whole idea of karma and everything is so old in Indian culture yeah. and then probably exported into China and Japan and Thailand and all yeah. these other countries where Buddhism is so big that you cannot just let go of it without like destroying the whole building of Buddhism. So they do have this problem in Buddhist Buddhism as a religion And there I cannot follow because it's not my own experience. Yeah, yeah. Wallace says that in these very deep states of meditation, you can experience past lives. Yeah. And for him, therefore, he is convinced well, that I it's think, true. I think, you know, the, if you want to prove reincarnation, uh, you need to have some people who can describe places where Indeed. they have never yeah. been in high detail. And yeah. uh, there is some experiments into that. Yeah. I'm a little bit... I, I'm very skeptical, but I've become a bit, a little bit less skeptical because mm. I've heard some critical um, observations in that field from like cer mm. certain that they have actually found people who mm. were able to describe, but very, very yeah places where they had never really could have been, and that the descriptions were accurate. But you know, I've, I'm there could I don't know, mm. but. Um, I do have one question that I really wanted to ask maybe if, um, yeah, this is also a whole podcast on itself, but um, we humans experience consciousness. Hmm. Um, the only thing that we are certain of is that um, having a complex structure like yeah, neural network uh, um, is related to this and this structure is complex in how it exchanges atoms and molecules all across the place and uses electrons to create electrical mm. pathways etc um i'm really you know just going a bit fast through this there's a whole lot to say about this but then if we look at the objects that we are creating when we're creating very um sophisticated microchips which also send mm. a lot of electrons around the place would that create 
complex consciousness is there mm. is it plausible plausible that my macbook already <laughs> is conscious i've been seriously yeah. asking myself this question yeah, yeah, like yeah. is a microchip already because it has this this complex process of sending electrons mm. around and a lot of information i don't know uh, yeah yeah posing a little bit of a maybe weird question <laughs> no it's not weird i mean many people are thinking about this uh, in science we call this artificial consciousness or yeah. robot consciousness um and well if you believe that consciousness in the end is something like an algorithm although an extremely complex algorithm which we have not understood yet and maybe we don't even have a method to understand it then in the end uh, in, in in philosophy this is called functionalism the stance so the idea that if you have a system which fulfills the function of consciousness in the same way as yours, then it will be the identical consciousness as yours. And then in principle, an artificial intelligence system, if it's just fulfilling this, the right consciousness, if it has the right, uh, the right function, if it has the right algorithm, will be conscious. When I, I, I may, may be asking more, like when should we start worrying that mm. we are um, creating already conscious entities which can also experience suffering is hmm. isn't already the microchips that we're creating right now having more complex yeah. structures or because a lot of people say well you know a lot of people say no that's something for the future to worry about we are not there yet our computers hmm. are not showing this type of complex behavior but you know in the end we also uh, are seeing very complex behaviors in trees and we're starting to mm. there's scientists who are starting to think that they have more complex forms of consciousness perhaps and yeah. can experience pain and stuff so i'm actually thinking aren't we there already mm. haven't we already created systems that can mm. have some sort of a little bit more complex forms of experience yeah. I, I don't know yeah indeed and one of my former academic teachers actually thomas metzinger in a way is a very well-known philosopher of consciousness, particularly self-consciousness, he actually warned people um, to not try to simulate or program or produce artificial conscious systems because they would be suffering. So he yeah. would really warn uh, against uh, Carlos not to do that. Well, my, <laughs> Wow, that's interesting. My, yeah, wow. my point of view is a bit different because I think that... I mean, I think it, it became clear by now that I believe that the heart problem cannot be solved and that consciousness can only be known, uh, can only be yeah, known and understood from the inside ultimately, although we can have this plausibility checks from a scientific perspective. I, I cannot, frankly speaking, I cannot tell how realistic it is to build conscious systems. Philosophers at this point, they tried to imagine thought experiments with basically one of their methods they don't don't do experiments most of the time but they can imagine situations and then imagine you know star trek they have this these teleporters yeah and imagine we would have you navid and we would try to teleport you to a different location so like an atom by atom yeah. teleportation yeah. from place a to b and now something would go wrong and the teleporter would teleport you to situation b but would not remove you from a and suddenly we would have two versions of you Navid at point A and Navid at point B. So it's a bit like Star Trek, future science fiction, yeah. philosophy, what we are now talking about. Would the two of you have the same conscious experience? And I would also say uh, yes, at least at the very beginning. After a while, it would change because you have different situations, different trajectories. So you would not be the same in the long run. But for a brief moment, you would have exactly the same conscious state if you had this one by one copy. But we should not underestimate 
how difficult it would be to have a real situation like that. So I would say, in principle, it should be possible to create um, an artificial consciousness, robot consciousness, whatever. How could we know? And in a yeah. way, this wraps up all of what we talked about so far. I mean, how do I know that you are conscious? We are in the end also interpreting that you look like a human being, you behave yeah. like a human being, you talk like a human being. So I also assume that you have similar conscious states as I'm having. Yeah. So in the end, it is an, it is an interpretative process, a process of interpretation. And we are doing this all the time. You know, when we are in a society talking to other people, we are all the time imagining. But from a, from a philosophical point of view, there always remains a bit of uncertainty. Can we really be sure? And yeah. most scientists here would say, you know, this is, we don't go so far. So the philosophers, they, they always are a bit more skeptical than the scientists. So they're always thinking about more possibilities, why it might not be true. But for the scientists, probably, you know, if we had a system that looks like you, behaves like you, talks like you, and cannot really be distinguished from you, then the scientists would in the end conclude, uh, therefore you are conscious. And that's also in the course and the history of, of consciousness research. I mean, nowadays it is it is common a common conclusion that, for example, many animals are conscious. Yeah. Because their bodies are similar. You know, particularly the animals more close to us. Well, we I'm saying the plants are probably even <laughs> conscious. Yeah, if you see the complex behaviors. Then we would have to look at the details. I mean, we know that plants, indeed, they are somehow like communicating. They are somehow exchanging information. Yeah. Where does consciousness begin? We don't know yet. We might be able to to give answers to these questions in the future. So I think in principle, yes, it would be possible to create an artificial system that is conscious. In the end, we would not be 100% sure, just like I'm not 100% sure about you right now. But we have good evidence for that. So we conclude, we interpret, we conclude, yes. Um, but I think we are still far away from that. Yeah. And then in the meantime, and maybe then let me also conclude from yes. my own perspective. I mean, we have, we have been talking so much about about this thesis, so I would also like to tell the listeners what my own conclusion is in yes. the end. I have here, and, and that maybe also reconciles the readers or the listeners who were a bit confused by, I mean, we started out very religiously. We talked about the Bhagavad Gita, you know, like Hinduism, these things, and we talked about science, psychology, psychology a bit about meditation, Buddhism in the end. So my, the question that I was investigating was, can psychology and yoga be reconciled and yoga i think we haven't talked now so much about yoga anymore but particularly then also the meditative aspect of yoga and the very classical answer would be we do the postures to prepare the body to meditate longer in a certain posture where we don't move and if we don't move then we don't disturb the body and also just don't disturb the mind so we can go deeper into meditation and then maybe have deeper insights about who we are Uh, and then in the end, maybe also what the essence of ourselves is. So I have here one quote from the Bhagavad Gita, which tries to give an answer to what the higher self, the capital S self is. Let's let's read that. And for those who have the Bhagavad Gita at home, you can look in the second chapter, it's verses 23 to 25. So it goes like this. Weapons do not cleave this self. Fire does not burn this self. Water does not wet this self. The wind does not dry it. This self is uncuttable. This is unburnable, unwettable, and undryable. This everlasting reality is eternal, omnipresent, stable, unmoving. 
this self is called un unmanifest, unthinkable, unchangeable. So this would be an attempt to try to describe this Atman, this higher self. But what this quote says actually is, we have no way to investigate it scientifically because, I mean, this text now, or this quote is maybe some 1,500, 1500 years old, so long before modern science. But it basically says, we cannot in an experiment do anything from an outside perspective objectively to investigate it. <laughs> Because, I mean, they imagine, you know, like imagine it would be a thing, then you could like cut it with a sword or so. Yeah, yeah. But you cannot. The self cannot be cut. Like it cannot be affected with any materialistic, any, you know, anything we could do. It can only be experienced from the inside. And, uh, and then in, in Advaita Vedanta, so if you cannot, you cannot even describe it perhaps, you can maybe call some attributes to somehow make sense of it. In Advaita Vedanta, there was one very influential, it's probably actually the, the founder of Advaita Vedanta, of the, this very influential branch uh, of, of Indian philosophy, uh, Adi Shankara, an 8th century philosopher. He has written a couple of verses where he tries to explain what the self not is. Ah, yeah. So this is in a way a negative approach. We also actually know this in Western theology. We have something called negative theology, where, I mean, they, of course, think about the concept of God. And and there are also people who say, we cannot describe God because it's beyond human concepts. And then you had theologists who say, then ha let's have negative theology, let's just say what not God is. And in the end, if we have said <laughs> not what is not, then maybe we understand what it is. And this Adi um, Shankara, he has written a, a poem, maybe you could call it a, a poem, it's called the Nirvana Shatkam, Nirvana, you also know this term from Buddhism, of course. And let me just read the first verse from that, the Nirvana Shatkam. He then says, I am neither the mind nor the intellect, memory nor ego, nor am I ears nor tongue. I am not the nose nor eyes, nor the earth, space, fire, nor wind. I am the limitless consciousness and pure self. It's just the first verse. It goes on like this yeah. for seven more verses. But, uh, and this is called in Sanskrit neti neti. That means not that, not that. So by summing up like what a self notice, in the end you might understand what it is. And from this, this quote from the Bhagavad Gita, the capital S self, so my own conclusion is this is a religious concept which goes beyond science. And either you believe it or not, I think, like we were talking about reincarnation, Either you believe it or not. I don't have a clear conclusion on that. That's up to everybody else to make up their mind. But what I find important to share, and this is also what yoga means for me in the, in the end, so what, what, we, what we call, you know, shamatha, stabilizing the mind. Also, relaxation is also part of that. We are living in a world where we are so overstimulated, where we are so triggered all the time, uh, noise, things we have to do, and the internet, messages, everything. So I think that yoga here can really help us to live better lives, to live more healthy lives, to get into a better state. And then the positive answer for me, what the shared link between yoga, particularly the meditative part of that, I mean, besides doing all the postures and breathing exercises, which are also good for your health and how you look like, whatever, this also helps you to live a good life. But on the psychological level, this Vipassana part of the story, 
So understanding that you are not your thoughts, you're not your emotions. And I mean, how many people become affected, become attached to what's going on in their mind? And then they may become jealous, may become hateful, or maybe they become, you know, so much in love that they maybe they don't see also not anymore that it might also be harming themselves. You know, if you're maybe putting somebody like loving somebody as if he or she were the most holy person or whatever, then you might also not see clearly anymore that maybe that person is harming you, is hurting you. So in the end, this idea that understanding that these processes, thoughts, emotions, feelings, they come and they go, you're not identical with them. In the end, I think what you are is the perceiver of this all. So this is, I cannot prove this scientifically, but to me it makes sense. I think really the contribution here of Indian philosophy and yoga is to develop yourself, to get to know yourself better, to also then understand which processes are triggering these thoughts and emotions so that you understand also how your own reactions are. So imagine that I would not tell you, oh, Navid, your mu music is really so bad. You're really a bad <laughs> DJ. I mean, you're not. I really like your music. Love, but imagine I would be telling you. That's the only reason I have people on so they can tell me how good of a they DJ can, I am. Advertise, <laughs> indeed. But I mean, imagine I would tell you, oh, your set really sucked. It, it, it's, it's, I, I, I run away after two minutes. And, I would and, learn something from would, that, you know. <laughs> yeah, but you might take this really personal and you might become, for example, very angry and whatever, you know, I mean, people might... I might, for sure. Yeah. Pe people, people might start fights because of that, you know. People might feel insulted because people might begin wars of that. I mean, in, in, in our culture, wars began sometimes because somebody took somebody's wife, you know. So yeah. men sometimes fought for women or maybe also women for men sometimes also, but because they so much identify and attach to some ideas about themselves. Yeah. Or I must be a very successful person and I compare myself to others and maybe I have fewer Instagram followers than they and then I suffer, I feel not worthy enough. So I really think that yoga, or meditation and Buddhism as well, doesn't matter so much which approach you take, but I think this is a shared, a shared conclusion that we can have and we also have scientific confirmation of that for example, mindfulness-based psychotherapy, so where parts of meditation, meditative exercises are included into psychotherapy, that for some problems that people have, this can really help. And therefore, science and yoga don't have to contradict each other in this shared um, field. And knowing this and practicing this, I believe, can help us to live better lives. Thank you very much. <laughs> You're very welcome. Thanks, Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah. See you on the dance floor. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to your next set. Awesome. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed today's show. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, there are several ways you can do this. You can do this on a monthly basis or with a one-time donation. Um, you can check out the episode description for more info or our website, inspiratiopodcast.com. Also, in the description and the website, you will find ways to sign up for our newsletter. And um, then I will send you an email if a new episode is released, which will be once about every four to six weeks. And I promise I won't send any other marketing. Also, there's an email address. Uh, check out the description again that you can use for 
questions or suggestions, uh, even guest suggestions or topic suggestions. So yeah, thank you very much and see you next time.